Hi, you're listening to Manufactured, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. I'm your host, Kim von der Weert, a student of human rights, turned garment factory manager, turned sustainable fashion critic. On this show, I talk to some of the most integral people who manufacture what we wear. They aren't the people you see in fashion magazines. They're the people behind closed doors working in fashion supply chains. This episode is part of a mini-series that explains how different fabrics are made. We're going back to basics and asking industry insiders questions like, what are the production processes behind different fabrics? Who are the players involved? What are their incentives? And more. Because it's hard to have a conversation about how to make a material better or how to make a garment better if we don't understand how it's made in the first place. This week, I'm revisiting a conversation with Vijay Savarna, the former CSR and Sustainability Manager for Asia 10, to talk about leather production. The conversation was originally released in May 2021. Asia 10 is a tannery that manufactures leathers, including cowhide, sheep, goat, and suede. Vijay takes my co-host Jesse and me through different kinds of leathers, the steps required to produce it, the inspection and grading and pricing procedures of the hides, and the relationship between farmers, tanneries, shoe manufacturers, and brands. Why don't we start by having you give us a bit of context? Can you tell us a little bit first about Asia Tan, and then we'll get into your story and, and where you fit into that. So with Asia Tan, could you share a little bit about what the company makes, give us a sense of the size and the scale, where it's operated, when it was founded? Paint us a picture. Sure. So uh, Asia Tan is uh, based out of southern China. We're a small tannery. We basically make leather. And uh, we produce material for some of the world's biggest brands, whether it's Nike, Adidas, BF Corp, Asics, Wolverine, Ariat. Some of the biggest brands actually come and source their material from us. We are based in a small town called Jiangmen, which is around like an hour, hour and a half from the big city of Guangzhou. And our trading office is from Hong Kong. We are an LWG-rated, gold-rated tannery, which is basically the leatherworking group. And gold rating is the highest uh, award that's given to a tannery based on their environmental sustainability. So we've been gold rated for the past many years. We would call ourselves a small to a mid-sized tannery. We have around like 300 employees during peak times. We were founded in the mid-90s, so we are around like 30 years old. And we have a pretty diverse group of uh, employees. We have employees from uh, Hong Kong, Canada, U.S., India, all our uh, technical uh, People are from India and obviously uh, parts of China. We're a small, mid-sized tannery, and uh, we really do enjoy working with some of the world's biggest brands because it's quite a challenge, and we look forward to it. So can you give us an overview of the steps required to make leather for somebody who has no ideas, people like us who are know very little about leather, and which of those processes Asia Tan does? Sure. Leather making, to just break it down on a skeletal level includes three steps, right? One is tanning phase. The second is a re-tanning phase. And the third is a finishing phase. So the tanning phase is where you take the raw hides from say a cow, goat, sheep, or a pig and convert it into a material that can last longer. You know, that's something you can make into leather as a finished product. For example, raw hides, they rot, right? So tanning is the phase where you actually make it such that it does not rot, it does not decompose. So it basically increases the life of the hide. That's the tanning phase. The next two phases are re-tanning and 
finishing. So what Asia Tan did was we used to buy tan hides, which is hides that have already gone through the first phase of tanning, and we would re-tan and finish the leather. Re-tanning is where you put it basically into a drum and uh, basically add color to it, give it the base color. That's called the crust, which comes out from that phase. And the crust is then finished with different colors or maybe like to give it the right feel, to give it the right optics. So that's the third phase, which is the finishing phase, which is where you have finished leather. So Asia Tan was basically doing the second and the third phases of leather production. And our raw material suppliers took care of the first phase of the leather production. Okay. So you were buying from people who were doing the tanning. And then if I understand correctly, the second phase was about like the color and the third phase was about like finishing and other types of details. Is that right or not right? Absolutely correct. So we would get chrome tan leather, which is called wet blue, you know, so it would be Mm -hmm. a blue, bluish color hide. Mm -hmm. And we would basically add, see if someone wants a black leather. So we basically put it through a drum process where it goes into a drum for like hours, you know, Mm -hmm. and then it would give it like that uh, base color of black for a Mm -hmm. black product. And then once it comes out of the drum, you dry it out and then it goes to the finishing stage where you mill the leather, which is basically put it in another drum so that it gets that leather texture, you know, those lines and mm-hmm. the pliability that leather has. So that's the finishing stage. And then is it like fabric? It gets sold on a roll then to assembly facilities that make shoes out of it? No, uh, leather gets sold as a hide. So each, each hide mm-hmm. basically is one piece, you know. So each piece is, whatever amount of square feet it is, gets sold as a piece. So we sell based on square footage. So each leather piece would say, for example, a cowhide coming from South America would probably be around like, for our purposes, would be like around, say, 45 square feet. So we basically cut it into half and then each basically sells sides, you know, just so that it's easier for us to process the leather. So we'd make a hide that's 45 square feet, we'll cut it into half, make it 25 square feet sometimes, and then process it. So each piece is then gets shipped to the shoe factory. So if you're selling by hide, right, which is basically, I guess, per animal, is each part of like that hide sort of considered equal? Like is a whole hide like sort of equivalent in terms of quality and durability and the types of products that it can be used for? Or are different parts of the hide better suited for different types of uses? Absolutely. So the best leather comes from the backbone, you know, so mm-hmm. the bellies get stretched out a lot more. So they're much thinner. And also the neck has a lot more folds. Mm-hmm. So the best shoes get made from the tightest parts of the animal hide, which is around the backbone. So oftentimes what happens is we sell the whole hide, right? So the hide goes to the shoe factory and the shoe factory has to basically cut the hide based on different components that they're going to use it in. So there are certain parts of the height that will go into, say, the tongue. This could be a looser part. But the major part of the component, like the vamps, get done from around the backbone. So that's interesting because what I was going to ask was like, so are you selling different parts of the hide to like different types of assembly facilities, depending on the types of products that you're making? But what I understand is that, in fact, no, you are selling the whole hide to one customer and that they are then basically sorting out and separating the parts that they want to use for different things. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Because the other thing you have to uh, remember is leather is a natural product. So there could be wrinkles, you know, there could be tick marks from like insects sitting on the hide, you know, 
or there could be scratches from basically the cow going through a brush and getting scratched. So these are the things that are natural aspect of leather, but they're things that do not go into certain parts of the shoe. They're, these things go into different parts of the shoe that usually don't get looked at more often, you know? So it's, we sell the hide and then the, the uh, shoe factory basically picks out the parts and puts in the places where they feel it's appropriate for that is so interesting because so when you first started describing this process, I was thinking about like my experience, like in a cut and sew factory where the incoming goods that we were receiving were primarily rolls of fabric. And my first thought was like, okay, when we do incoming goods inspection of those rolls of fabric, like we would, you know, run them through a light machine and look at whether there were spots, whether there were inconsistencies, like the different, you know, any types of quality issues that there were. And we were doing digital dye sublimation. So most of the fabrics that we were receiving were white fabrics and that we were then sublimating and printing on later. And whenever we did get fabrics that had sort of slight imperfections on them or whatever, it was always a challenge within our warehouse to organize it in such a way that we knew like that we would sort of set those because also we were in Cambodia and our fabrics were mostly coming from China. So to ship those fabrics back to our supplier was was pretty difficult at that point. We had like a sourcing office in China that was also doing inspection before they got loaded on the boat for exactly this reason. But, you know, sometimes things still got missed. And then we would sort of set aside those fabrics to be used for products that were going to be printed with dark designs and dark patterns on them, because then it wouldn't be so obvious as opposed to like a light or a white design. But it was a real headache because from an inventory management perspective, it's all the same item code, you know, like you don't have different item codes for the white fabric that, you know, whatever type of fabric it might have been the white fabric that had like slight spots on it and the the one that you know that didn't so it was always like from a management perspective it was a headache and now the process that you're describing is like it sounds like that times a hundred and then very similar (laughs) well I think a lot more difficult so and then my second thought is like one of the things of course that like when we were costing products So we were making apparel and when we were costing products, like we would look very carefully at like basically the markers and the layouts. So like, for example, if we were putting together a quotation for a t-shirt, we would look at the layout of that fabric. We know, let's say it was a meter and a half wide and we knew that like we could fit X number of panels on that piece of fabric. And we had software that actually laid it out for us so that we could optimize the layout and reduce the scrap. And we used that when we were doing costing because like our material, our fabrics were the bulk of our cost. And so we needed to know exactly how much wastage we were going to have and that we needed to sort of build into our cost model. And now I'm thinking about like, how would you even go about doing that because these pieces must all be slightly different shapes, sizes, and like the laying out, cutting out like the panels that you might need to produce a shoe or a handbag, like that must be a really tedious job compared to making t-shirts where the fabric's all the same size and you can kind of automate that a little bit better. Right. So, I mean, the principle is basically the same. What we also did was as we got our raw material, which is the tanned hide to our tannery, we would first grade it right? Based on the raw material. So there are certain uh, hides that would be a lower grade than some of the other hides. So you would ha- break them down into three different grades. So based on uh, the amount of tick marks, scratches, open defects and closed defects, you know? So once that is done, then each material 
based on the grade or each height based on the grade would go to a different leather product. Mm -hmm. So there are certain leather products that we can finish better to cover those defects. There are certain leather products that are less finished. So it's more, you could see more of the defects if you put a a hide with more defects in it. So we often had to grade at the very first stage. And then again, once it gets to the crust stage, then you see that, oh, these defects are not getting covered. So maybe we'll take it out and then use it for another product. So it was almost always like a mix and match. So each and every stage we would have like QC analysis where we'll have a look at the first stage at the raw material and the second stage at the crust and the third stage of the finished product. And then oftentimes the good thing about leather is you can refinish into a different product. So once it gets to the final stage, if it's still not up to par, we can take it out and then refinish it into something else by changing the process, changing the chemistry or changing the physical process. So there is a little bit of flexibility when it comes to that, but I agree that it has to be absolutely well done at the first stage to prevent changes in the second and third stages. So once we get the raw material graded and then accordingly allocated to the different finished materials that we think we can make from it. And this was all done manually, by the way. This was all done manually, yeah, that's, luckily. that's what I'm thinking. It, it sounds like a very different, difficult process to kind of like, well, to standardize, basically. Sort of the nature of the work means that there will always be a lot of like sort of case-by-case decision-making and scenarios. Is that right? Absolutely right, because that's what uh, the natural form of leather does, right? Because each and every height is absolutely different from the other. There's no two heights that would ever be the same, whether it's size, whether it's the shape, whether it's defects. So we basically had a group of people who've been with the company for, I would say, like 20, 30 years, actually, even from the very beginning, who basically had the experience. This is where Asia Tan put its emphasis on educating its workforce. You know, So these people are the ones who imparted knowledge to the people in the team to make sure that the grading is absolutely right. If it gets missed in the first stage, all right, there's someone else who will catch it. This is where uh, employee education is very important when it comes to uh, material manufacturing. So when we receive our leather, or rather when we buy the leather from our supplier, we ask them to grade it based on what they feel is the grade. So for example, there's different grades of leather, right? It's called A grade, B grade, C grade, all right, for example. Mm-hmm. So A grade is the best quality leather, you know, it's the least number of def- defects. There's B grade and there's C grade based on, one thing you've got to look at is how many defects are in the leather or what the looseness of the leather is. So when we buy it, we expect a certain quality of the leather. So we make sure that that leather is of that quality when we receive it, all right? So we know what the quality of the leather is going to be when we receive it. So now based on that, we make the leather, different leather products, it gets finished. And then when it's finished, we have an understanding with the factory, shoe factories, who also expect a certain grade of leather. For example, they want, say, 70% of A-grade leather. They want 20% of B-grade leather is fine with them, C-grade leather. A concept I need to introduce over here is cutability of the leather, right? So how much of the leather can be cut and used? For example, if they want like a 95% leather, 95% of the total piece needs to be used in the shoe, you know? Then there's obviously 90%, 85%. So you have different grading that we have to make sure that it comes within that grade when we send it to the shoe factory. The same thing when we receive it, we need to make sure that the leather that we receive is within a certain grade. Are there a lot of disagreements between like the people that you're buying the tan leather from and then the shoe factory that you're selling it to? I mean, is it common that people would disagree? Like one party has graded it A and the next party says, no, actually, this is B. Honestly speaking, between the shoe factories and us, there's always a little bit of difference. 
because they see the item as, all right, say that's 80%. For us, it's more 85 to 90%, you know? Because then the issue of claims comes in, right? You either have to replace a product or you have to basically give them a claim and then say, all right, this is the final price then. Yeah, that's what I, that's that's where my mind is going. <laughs> right. So oftentimes they need a set number of square feet to finish their, say, 100,000 pairs of shoes, right? So it's not like, oh, let's just forget it. We need to provide them with extra material to make sure that they can finish those 100,000 pairs of shoes. But when it comes to our suppliers, luckily, we've been in business with our suppliers for a long time, almost like 20, 25 years in some cases, you know? So we kind of have set up a way in which we know exactly what we're going to get. So there's less of a problem with our suppliers, but there definitely is somewhat of a confrontational relationship that we have with the shoe factories, some shoe factories more than others, you know, but that's why we have a team that basically spends most of its time at shoe factories trying to explain like, all right, these items can be cut in this way, this way. Because again, leather is one of those products that, People look at it differently, you know, different people look at a, a leather hide and see different defects, you know. Yeah. So we make sure that we also educate the people who are cutting at the factory level to make sure that they see it from this point of view, like, all right, this part can go into a part of the shoe that you can use it for, you know. So. Oh, so you're doing education at the shoe assembly facility. I wouldn't call it education, but rather imparting knowledge, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's not, all right, this is a course and this is what we're teaching, but oftentimes we work with them together to make sure that they look at it from a different angle rather than just trying to like, all right, this part doesn't go in the shoe. We're like, all right, this part will go into this part of the shoe. So it seems like that relationship between you and the shoe factory that you're selling to is a pretty critical one and that the trust there is pretty important and I'm curious, so were the shoe factories that you were selling to, were they also in China or were they elsewhere? Because I'm thinking about the logistics and the potentially the barriers to establishing a strong relationship there. Honestly speaking, over the years, we've seen like a, a decrease in our uh, business coming from Chinese factories. And a lot of this manufacturing has actually moved to Vietnam and Indonesia, mm -hmm. at least for the shoe factories that we dealt with. So... I would say maybe like seven, eight years ago, China was probably 60 or 70% of the business from uh, shoe factories. But now it's more around 30% is China. I would say around like a majority is Vietnam and Indonesia. And again, Bangladesh is another one of those countries where uh, we're seeing a lot of industries, uh, footwear uh, manufacturing industries being set up. So Bangladesh is another one of those countries that we did some business with. So how do you maintain these relationships then? With the shoe factories? Yeah, exactly. Because like you described, it sounds like that's sort of where the critical moment is, where there might be disagreement about like the quality or things like that. And actually, I'm thinking about like our own, my experience in Cambodia, where our fabric suppliers were, we had a sourcing office in China so that they could sort of take care of those relationships, you know, but I, I'm curious how you guys approach that then. Right. So we did have a team that was strictly based in China. And their whole job was basically traveling to all these different factories in China, Vietnam, India, Indonesia, even Thailand in some cases. Their whole job was basically being in touch with the people at these shoe factories and making sure that the material they receive is okay. If it's not, then let's try to find a solution to make sure that we both are happy. Again, we don't want it to be a confrontation. We want to make sure that they're happy because in the end, the job was to make sure that the right material goes to the right shoe so that the brands can sell it to the customer, you know? Yeah. Oftentimes, things would uh, happen where, all right, 
we could not reach a consensus. So oftentimes a brand would have to get involved. Oh, really? But that was almost like a last case scenario. You know, that was like not something that was usually uh, the way to go for us. That's interesting. You mentioned that a brand is actually the final customer for both for both you and the shoes factory. Those shoes, though your materials is selling to the shoes factory. So we talked about the quality, how to evaluate the quality of the leather, which part, which grid, and so on. So the brand, the shoe brands, are they in line with the quality standards of the shoe factory? I mean, I see there are three parties, the brand, and the shoe factory and uh, the facility you worked on and the tenneries, so four parties. Then you looks like the bridge between the tenneries and the uh, shoe factory. But then how the brand positions themselves in terms of uh, the evaluation of the laser quality? All right. So, so just, just to make sure uh, we're on the same page, we were the tannery, all right? Let me just explain how our business model worked. So our sales reps would meet with the designers at one of these brands and they would have like, all right, we're making this new shoe. You would like to use your leather. What can we do? So we'd go to the sampling stage where they'll make some, make some shoes out of it, see how it works out. The designers will approve it. And then finally the costing would be done, I guess, between the brands and the shoe factories and the forecasting of how much material would be needed that would go into like, say how many number of pairs of shoes that the brand needs. And then the shoe factory would place the order with us for, say 100,000 square feet of material to be going into 50,000 pairs of shoes. So we were right in the middle where we dealt with also the brands and also dealt with the shoe factories. The designing part and how our material goes into which shoe would be done by the brand designers. And we would just present them with different materials. Oftentimes the designer would come back and tell us, listen, this piece of leather looks great. Can you make it in this color? Or can you make it a little bit softer or can you make it a little bit more malleable or the grain is too bold. Can you make it with a softer grain? So they'll work with us on these changes that they want in the shoe. And then once those changes have been finally finalized, the shoe factories would basically give us an order when they receive the confirmation of the number of pairs to be made from the brand. And then we would ship our material directly to the shoe factory. So oftentimes, we have to make sure that we keep every part happy, make sure that the hides get to the shoe factory on time, and also make sure that the designer is happy with the final product they're receiving. That's so interesting. So the brands actually deeply get involved into the raw material design and to finalize the raw materials to smooth the relationship between your facility and the shoes factories. 100%. The design absolutely comes from the brands. Yeah, and that's interesting because I suppose maybe like in for certain types of apparel products, that's where the material is really important. I would imagine that that's also the case. The factory that we were working for wasn't producing products that where the material was like a super important part of the piece. And so like the brand really wasn't as involved in it. But what I want to clarify is, so the brand is involved in the design of the leather, which makes sense because the leather is, I mean, especially a shoe like or a handbag or whatever, the product, the material really matters to the performance of the product. But they're not buying the leather from you. You are still selling it to the shoe factory and they are still buying 
the finished shoe. So when you are putting together quotations, those are going to the shoe factory is then like adding in their part of the work. And they're the ones who then put together the final quotation for the brand. Is that right? Yes, I'm guessing that's how it works on that end. Mm. But again, the designers are designing the shoe, for example. Mm -hmm. We are the ones who are saying that, all right, this leather would probably look good. Or the designer would be like, listen, do you, can you make me a leather that looks like this? You know, they can always come in like, because we worked a lot with the fashion side of footwear. You know, we didn't make commodity products that black leather, white leather, that's it. We work kind of with like uh, the designers to make fashionable leather. So there's always like a little bit of customization of the leather that was included. All right. So we've talked a lot about who you're selling to and where they are. I want to go back to the raw materials. You said you were buying tanned hides and then you guys were doing the re-tanning. But where were those materials coming from? Right. So most of our material comes from two places. One is uh, South America, Brazil, and the other is Africa mostly uh, Eastern Africa. Luckily, we have had uh, good relationships with our suppliers for tanned hides, and we've been in business with them for decades. So we actually have a very good understanding with them about what material we're expecting for them to send us, and uh, we make sure that we're in constant touch with them. Because again, we work closely with our upstream suppliers to make sure that we're on the same page when it comes to sustainability, right? So... For example, we did an LCA project with one of our suppliers in Brazil where we actually had a look at the environmental footprint of rearing of the cow. So it was a cradle-to-gate LCA project. So we got information from them on what is the environmental footprint of the cow and then added our processes into it to make a full cradle-to-gate LCA research project. So again, it helps to have a very good uh, relationship with the suppliers. And we're trying to do the same with our Eastern African uh, suppliers too right now. Uh, because again, you've got to remember, when it comes to leather, a large environmental footprint of the leather manufacturing comes from rearing of the animal. Right. So I just want to clarify. So you're buying these tanned hides. Are those then the same entities that are actually rearing the animals? Or is there like another layer in between? All right. So the way it works is we work with the supplier that's providing the hides. So... The hides get tanned at this phase, right? So in this stage is where the raw hides get tanned. So that's where we're buying it from. But they basically get their raw hides from slaughterhouse. That's where the meat is getting processed. And then they basically collect all the hides and then tan it and then sell it to us. Okay, clear. Oh, interesting. So there's sort of like, I guess you could say sort of two parties or two entities or two steps before it even gets to you. I would in fact say there are three steps because then... Where is the cow coming from, right? So the cow is either coming in places in South America, it's obviously industrialized. So you have these big corporations basically rearing the cow for the meat, then they butcher it, and then they sell it. But they receive their cows from farmers, you know? Oh, right. So it of goes course. to different, different stages before it gets to even the slaughterhouse and then to the tannery. I'm curious for one question that. Um you mentioned, uh, Vijay, that the material is coming from slaughterhouse. And the slaughterhouse, of course, the cow, from farmers, from headers. And headers, I imagine they are individual headers, right? Not like uh, in other countries. There are, for instance, not like in the U.S., you have industrial animal farms. Just curious about, so where are the animals from? 
like individual headers or big corporations? All right. So, I mean, when it comes to South America, it's pretty similar to even the States, I'm guessing. It's industrialized farming, right? But in Eastern Africa, it's more of, for example, a farmer has 10 cows and he takes two cows to the slaughterhouse. So that's not industrialized. So basically a slaughterhouse just collects hides for like a few days and then sends it to a tannery. He sells it to the tannery. So industrialized farming is where they just buy like cows in bulk, right? And then they basically process it for the meat. Obviously in Brazil, they let it grow to a certain age and then they process it for the meat. So it goes into like huge herds and then these herds get processed into meat. While as in Eastern Africa, it's totally the opposite because they have much smaller quantities. So the farmer sells it to us, a butcher, the butcher collects the highs and then sells it to a tannery. Okay, that's, that's really interesting because I ask this question because these days uh, traceability and transparency are very hot words, you know. And I was thinking, Absolutely. yeah, and I was thinking, well, so you're really, from your example, it makes me think you really need to have trust on with your direct supplier first, and then you are able to know quite well where your materials come from. And that trust is actually built up with levels. Only, only by that way, you can say, okay, I really know where it comes from. Otherwise, it's like a puzzle. There's, without trust, there's no way to really trace, of course, unless we have a very developed technology, but we don't have it today. So I suppose today, if we talk about trans transparency and traceability, we really need to talk about the trust with the direct suppliers and suppliers' suppliers. And I think that is the way to make it possible. 100%, Jesse, you actually hit two keywords that are like, again, buzzwords in the leather industry. That's traceability and transparency. And that's the reason why when we source our material from South America, we make sure that we get a declaration from our supplier saying that the material that we're receiving from them is not involved in any deforestation, is not involved in any slave trading, is not involved in any kind of embargoes that are set by the government. So we make sure that they sign the declaration, give it to us because they are liable if they're not. Coming back to traceability. So it's easier to trace an animal that's gone through industrialized production or industrialized farming. So in our case, what we did is we worked with our supplier to come up with a code. So each hide that we receive from a supplier is marked with a certain uh, code, which basically tells us exactly when that animal was slaughtered and which group of farms it came from. So that was something we worked on for the last few years with our supplier so that we can trace each and every hide back to the farm that it came from because then we can trace the farm, make sure that that farm was not involved in any kind of deforestation in the Amazon. So again, this code is kept throughout our process. It, we, it gets all the way to the shoe factory. Even they can check that code. It's an open database where they can go and punch in that code into the website and they'll know exactly what farm it's come from and to make sure that that farm has not been involved in any form of deforestation. So again, traceability is a number one topic when it comes to leather supply chains right now. I actually have one last context question that I realized we hadn't talked about, which was we've talked a lot about the leather, but there's another type of material that Asia Tan would buy, right? And that would be chemicals. Is that Right? Absolutely. So the two raw materials that go into leather making, leather making is a very simple process, you know. There's only two raw materials. One is obviously the hides and the second is the chemicals. So chemicals are what give leather some of the 
features that you want from leather, for example, make it soft. But again, chemicals are also one of the reasons why leather is a polluting industry or the leather industry is a polluting industry. So in our case, what we did is we went and analyzed each and every chemical that goes into the leather making process. And back in 2012, 2014, 2012, 2013, 2014, we had close to like 70, 80 chemicals uh, that went to leather making of one product, you know? So we've tried to bring that down to around like 20, 25 chemicals. Just based strictly on research, put each chemical, see what each chemical does, and then basically figure out what's the better alternative to that chemical. What's a better environmentally friendly chemical that we can use in its place. Again, in the end, leather is the boss, all right? We want to make a good product. We're not going to make a bad product because we're trying to be environmentally sustainable. We have to make a good product that's environmentally sustainable. That was our motto. So that's what we worked on. And again, this is something that each and every manufacturing facility should work on is their chemistry. Because one of the things that we often face when I talk to other manufacturers is how can I reduce pollution, right? How can my ETP take a lower load, right? And oftentimes it's not buying more expensive equipment or buying more expensive technology to treat your wastewater. Oftentimes it's going to the fundamentals, to the very first stage, seeing what chemicals you're putting in your product so that the chemical load on the ETP is much lower at the later stage. It's You don't have to pay a lot of money to fix the pollution. Fix the chemistry first, and then you can talk about fixing your ETP plant. So it's about sort of reducing from the get-go the types of chemicals and the load of chemicals that you're needing to use and seeing if you can get that down to sort of a bare minimum. And then looking at like, the wastewater treatment and things like that. But if you can get a better start from the point of origin, then everything else sort of that follows also becomes much easier. Is that right? Absolutely. 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 Look at the fundamentals, look at the chemicals going into your product, and then you can fix your EPP plant later to reduce your uh, pollution. Are the chemicals that you're buying mostly coming from China or what kind of like partners do you have for that? Majority of our chemicals, I would say like close to like 99% of our chemicals come from branded companies. So these are the big companies like Stahls, Lanxus. Because again, one of the other things you have to look at is when you're making products, for example, shoes or apparel, you have to look at the restrictive substances. And all the restrictive substances basically come from the chemicals. So it's important that you have a chemical supplier that you can trust to make sure that there's no restrictive substances that get... Uh, passed on to the product that you're making. So it's important that you buy chemicals from places that you know, just to make sure that you don't run into problems later on. So most of our chemicals come from uh, brands. And oftentimes, obviously, uh, the big uh, chemical companies, uh, they do have their agents or their partners in China. So it was never a difficult thing for us to get our brand chemicals in China. Thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge with us. It's been such an education. Thank you, Weijie. I've learned a lot. No, thanks, Kim, Jesse, for having me. You know, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Manufacture. I've been your host, Kim von der Weert. And if you learned something new from this episode and want to support the show, come say hi to me on LinkedIn or drop me an email on kim at manufacturedpodcast.com. And of course, subscribe, rate, and review us on the podcast app you're listening to this episode on. Take a look at the episode description for all the details and stay tuned for more. 